Envision this. A 38-year-old man comes to your clinic for a follow-up for his long-standing mild hypertension. I'm all good, he reports. He reveals that he is focused on many lifestyle habits to improve his health. He has never smoked. He reduces alcohol intake to only one beer on weekends. And he started doing aerobic exercise for 30 minutes each day. On exam, he appears to have a healthy BMI, but his blood pressure is 150 over 84 millimeters per mercury. That's not good, he says. The physical exam is otherwise unremarkable. After talking to him about his blood pressure, you encourage his ongoing attention to lifestyle measures, but you decide that the best course of action at this time is for him to begin an antihypertensive medication called hydrochlorothiazide. How will you explain this medication to your patient? Welcome to Audio Bricks. This is Ed Barnes breaking down the diuretics foundations and frameworks in your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Define diuretics and provide examples of their uses. 2. List the classes of diuretics according to their site of action in the renal tubule. And 3. For each diuretic class, describe its mechanisms of action for sodium and potassium excretion. Part 1. What are diuretics? Have you ever heard someone talk about taking a water pill? Most likely, the person was referring to a diuretic, which is a drug that promotes an increase in urine volume, also known as diuresis. Diuretics are used widely in medicine to decrease the volume of fluid in the body. They do this by increasing the excretion of sodium and water through the kidneys and decreasing the reabsorption of sodium and water at the kidney's tubules. Sometimes we use the term diuresis to mean increased loss of a specific substance in the urine. For example, loop and thiazide diuretics cause potassium diuresis, and loop diuretics can cause calcium diuresis. In this discussion, when we refer to diuretic drug, we specifically mean sodium and water diuresis. Diuretics are generally used whenever we want to lower the extracellular volume. They are usually used along with dietary sodium restriction because when total body sodium increases, most of it goes into the extracellular space. Water follows the sodium into this space, increasing the extracellular volume. Some conditions for which diuretics are used include peripheral edema, usually in the feet or legs, pulmonary edema, often as part of congestive heart failure, high blood pressure due to increase in intravascular volume from the increase in sodium and water retention, ascites due to liver disease, and renal disease, including end-stage renal disease and nephrotic disease, in which excess sodium and water are retained. Each type of diuretic also has specific uses. For example, thiazide diuretics lower urine calcium excretion and can help prevent kidney stones. There are several types of diuretics, each with its own mechanism of action, indications, and potential side effects. Each diuretic is covered in detail in its own brick. This brick discusses the uses of diuretics in general and briefly introduces the different types. By the end, you'll have a nice framework to build on as you study each diuretic in greater detail. Let's pause for a quiz. 
Diuretics are most often used to treat which conditions? High blood pressure and conditions that cause fluid retention like heart failure, liver cirrhosis, and nephrotic syndrome. So, how do we classify diuretics? Diuretics are classified by where they act along the nephron. For example, proximal tubule, loop of Henle, or the distal convoluted tubule. They are also divided by their effect on urinary potassium excretion. The first is potassium-wasting diuretics, which increase the urinary excretion of potassium and potentially cause hypokalemia. And the second is potassium-sparing diuretics, which do not increase urinary excretion of potassium and potentially cause hyperkalemia. We'll now introduce the diuretics going down the nephron from proximal to distal. Part 2. Where do diuretics work in the kidney? These drugs act at several key locations within a nephron, mostly by inhibiting specific sodium transporters, but osmotic diuretics work a bit differently. Going down the nephron from proximal tubule to the collecting duct, matching each class of diuretics with their site of action. Acetazolamide works in the proximal tubule. Loop diuretics work on the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. The site of action of thiazide diuretics is in the distal convoluted tubule, and potassium-sparing diuretics work on the collecting duct. All diuretics limit sodium and water reabsorption, but each does this in its own way. Before we get into the mechanisms of diuretics that work in specific nephron segments, let's first discuss osmotic diuretics. Osmotic diuretics freely filter across the glomerulus into the proximal tubule. However, once these diuretics are in the tubule, they are not reabsorbed. Instead, they act as an effective osmol, keeping water in the tubule so that less water and sodium can be reabsorbed throughout the nephron. Osmotic diuretics have their strongest effect in the proximal tubule, but they also maintain this mechanism of action throughout the entire nephron, causing a massive loss of water and sodium in the urine. The main uses of osmotic diuretics are to reduce intracranial pressure and intraocular pressure, either of which can become abnormally high with certain conditions. Osmotic diuretics first work systemically. They are injected in the blood and raise the serum osmolality, causing fluid to shift from the intracellular volume to the extracellular volume. Once the excess volume is filtered at the glomerulus, osmotic diuretics increase the excretion of that fluid into the urine. Here's another quiz. Diuretics increase urine output by raising the concentration of which ion in the renal tubules? And the answer would be sodium. Water follows sodium. Let's move on to discuss carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. The main diuretics that work on the proximal tubule are carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. They inhibit carbonic anhydrase, an enzyme key to acid-base homeostasis. This prevents sodium and bicarbonate reabsorption. As a result, more sodium and bicarbonate are excreted, causing more water to be excreted along with them. Hence, urine output increases. What is the mechanism of action of carbonic anhydrase inhibitors? Well, in the proximal tubule, there are two isoenzymes that work 
in tandem with each other. Intracellular carbonic anhydrase and membrane-bound extracellular carbonic anhydrase. In the proximal tubule filtrate, carbonic anhydrase converts bicarbonate to carbon dioxide and water. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors inhibits this, leaving bicarbonate in the lumen of the proximal tubule. Since the reabsorption of sodium is linked to bicarbonate, both bicarbonate and sodium are lost through the urine, and water is lost with them. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are weak diuretics because there are many other sodium transporters in the proximal tubule and farther down the nephron that can compensate for the inhibition of the single pathway. So, how are carbonic anhydrase inhibitors used? Despite their limited role as traditional renal diuretics, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are most often used to treat open-angle glaucoma and to prevent altitude sickness. Here's a clinical correlation for you. Altitude sickness occurs when an individual cannot get enough oxygen at high altitudes, usually after a person rapidly transitions from a low to high altitude. Patients develop a headache and nausea. Why does this happen? Well, at higher altitudes, the atmospheric pressure and alveolar oxygen are lower, causing a person's blood oxygen levels to drop. Blocking carbonic anhydrase in the kidneys, acetazolamide causes bicarbonate to be excreted. This induces metabolic acidosis, causing secondary hyperventilation. This preventive hyperventilation increases arterial oxygen and prevents altitude sickness. Let's stop now for a quick quiz. What conditions are most often treated with carbonic anhydrase inhibitors? Open angle glaucoma and altitude sickness are most often treated with carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Moving down the tubule, we next arrive at a very potent class of diuretic, the loop diuretics. What is the mechanism of action of loop diuretics? Loop diuretics block the sodium-potassium 2-chloride co-transporter at the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle and increases the amount of sodium and chloride in the tubular fluid. This creates an osmotic gradient that pulls more water into the renal tubules and promotes diuresis. In addition to the excretion of sodium and potassium and chloride, loop diuretics increase urinary loss of calcium and magnesium. So, how are loop diuretics used? Loop diuretics are used to treat any disease that leads to high extracellular volume and edema, such as congestive heart failure. Now moving on to the distal convoluted tubule. The distal convoluted tubule is a site of action of thiazide diuretics. Like loop diuretics, they block sodium and chloride reabsorption, but they are not as potent as loop diuretics since most of the sodium has already been reabsorbed by the time the tubular fluid reaches the distal convoluted tubule. So, what is the mechanism of action of thiazide diuretics? Thiazide diuretics block the sodium and chloride symporter in the distal convoluted tubule, increasing the amount of sodium in the tubular fluid and causing diuresis. Thiazides also enhance tubular calcium reabsorption and potassium excretion. 
And how are thiazide diuretics used? Thiazides are among the first-line drugs for treating primary, also known as essential hypertension. Because they are of lower potency, they are not used often to treat severe volume overload found in conditions like congestive heart failure. They can be used to prevent calcium-containing kidney stones because of their ability to lower urine calcium. Let's pause for another quiz. Thiazide diuretics increase the luminal reabsorption of which cation? And that cation would be calcium. Let's transition now to the collecting duct, which is the site of action of potassium-sparing diuretics. Most diuretics are potassium-wasting, meaning that potassium is lost as part of the sodium-water diuresis. Thus, most diuretics cause hypokalemia as a common side effect. This happens for a couple of reasons. First, most agents that increase flow through the tubule increase potassium excretion at the cortical collecting duct. Second, diuretics induce total body volume depletion, which stimulates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system to make more aldosterone. This hormone increases potassium excretion in the urine. Even though the potassium-sparing diuretics reduce volume, they do not increase urinary excretion of potassium, unlike loop or thiazide diuretics, thus their name, potassium-sparing. And now, what is the mechanism of action of the potassium-sparing diuretics? Potassium-sparing diuretics act in the principal cells of the collecting duct, the final portion of the nephron, and can be divided into two subclasses aldosterone receptor blockers, and epithelial sodium channel, or ENAC inhibitors. In the collecting duct, sodium is reabsorbed and potassium is excreted. Aldosterone stimulates these processes by increasing the number of ENAC channels, the activity of sodium-potassium ATPase, and the number of potassium channels for potassium secretion into the tubular fluid. These events, in turn, cause intracellular sodium to increase and potassium to be secreted and lost into the urine. Aldosterone receptor blockers such as spironolactone block the receptor and therefore the effects of aldosterone. Thus, sodium reabsorption and potassium secretion are blocked, hence the term potassium sparing. In contrast, sodium channel inhibitors directly block the ENAC channels, to prevent sodium reabsorption, more like a conventional diuretic. This makes the cells more negatively charged and the lumen more positively charged, which lowers potassium secretion and hence lowers the loss of potassium in the urine. Potassium-sparing diuretics can be hazardous when serum potassium levels are high, as in chronic kidney disease. Here's another quick quiz. What is the driving force behind potassium secretion in the collecting duct? Sodium reabsorption generates an electrical gradient. The lumen becomes more negatively charged with respect to the intracellular charge, and this drives potassium secretion. So, how are potassium-sparing diuretics used? Potassium-sparing diuretics are commonly used as adjuncts to potassium-wasting diuretics to maintain potassium balance and avoid hypokalemia. 
Additionally, aldosterone receptor antagonists such as spironolactone reduce mortality in patients with advanced congestive heart failure. They are also used in patients with end-stage liver disease and ascites. While this discussion so far is focused on comparing the tubular physiology of the different diuretics, let's now compare the different diuretic classes and their effects. First, osmotic diuretics work all along the nephron but exert most of their actions in the proximal convoluted tubule. They increase all the urinary electrolytes and have no effects on blood pH. Second, Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors' main site of action is the proximal convoluted tubule. The target site is carbonic anhydrase. They increase urinary bicarbonate and decrease the blood pH. Next is loop diuretics. They work in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. The target site is a sodium-potassium 2-chloride co-transporter. They increase urinary sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, and magnesium they increase the blood pH. Next, we have thiazide diuretics. Their main site of action is in the distal convoluted tubule, and the target site is the sodium chloride symporter. They increase urinary sodium, potassium, and chloride, but they decrease urinary calcium. Thiazides also increase blood pH. And then there are the potassium-sparing diuretics. Sodium channel inhibitors work in the collecting duct with the target site of ENAC. They increase urinary sodium but decrease urinary potassium. They can also lead to a decrease in blood pH. And last, the potassium-sparing diuretics aldosterone receptor blockers also work in the collecting duct, and they target the aldosterone receptor. They increase urinary sodium and decrease urinary potassium they lead to a decrease in blood pH. And that brings us to the end of our discussion on diuretics, foundations, and frameworks. Now, let's recap to see if we've completed our goals. First, are you able to describe how most diuretics work and name their main uses? Most diuretics work by increasing the excretion of sodium in water through the kidneys. Diuretics decrease the reabsorption of sodium in water at the kidney's tubules. They are used in conditions that lead to increased fluid retention like congestive heart failure, liver disease, and nephrotic syndrome. Next, are you able to list the four main classes of diuretics and their sites of action in the renal tubule? There are carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that work in the proximal convoluted tubule. The loop diuretics work in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. Thiazide diuretics site of action is in the distal convoluted tubule. And the potassium sparing diuretics work in the collecting duct. Finally, can you list the class of diuretics that waste potassium and the classes that spare potassium? Loop diuretics and thiazide diuretics both waste potassium into the urine. The potassium-sparing diuretic classes, sodium channel inhibitors, and aldosterone receptor blockers both spare potassium and increase the blood levels of potassium. And that's it. <laughs>
Armed with your newfound knowledge on diuretics, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of this episode. You are seeing a 38-year-old man that came to your clinic for follow-up for his long-standing mild hypertension. You decide to start him on a hydrochlorothiazide. How will you explain this medication to your patient? You explain that hydrochlorothiazide is a diuretic that will help his body get rid of excess sodium and water. Because it increases excretion of sodium and water, he may produce more urine once he starts taking it. Your patient agrees to start the medication and comes for a follow-up in two weeks. His blood pressure is 128 over 74 millimeters per mercury. He is pleased with the results. You tell him that he should continue to take his medications, exercise, and limit his dietary salt. And that's it for our show. Make sure you like and subscribe if you like what you hear. And remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time.